The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine. I'm the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And our program uh, today ties into a perspective, an opinion piece soon to be published in the May issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. It's from the University of Utah, and it's called Let Them In, Family Presence, during intensive care unit procedures. And I'll just start off by saying uh, already this piece has uh, provoked a lot of different opinions. And I'm hoping that in discussing it with uh, Sarah Beasley, who's a third-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at the University of Utah, and Dr. Samuel Brown, who is the director for the center for humanizing critical care and an assistant professor of medicine, I'm told soon to get tenure, associate professor at the University of Utah. And being uh, someone who grew up with a medical student and a medical resident uh, with a system that barred families in general and then severely restricted even the presence of families in critical care situations, this is really part of a trend to make the unfortunate experience of critical care more humane. But there may be some downside to opening up intensive care units entirely, and we we hope to touch on some of this uh, in our program this evening. So uh, let me, I I have two discussants, and I'm going to ask them why they think families should be present in the intensive care unit. Maybe start by telling us what you think the state of family presence in critical care units in general, if you have any information about what it is generally throughout the United States and maybe Canada. So right now, there's no standard practice, no standard of care revolving family involvement in the ICU. The degree of family involvement is highly variable. We have many ICUs in the United States, some of which we've had personal experience with, where visiting hours are highly limited. You know, a few hours a day, a couple family members. Family members are not included on rounds or allowed to stay for procedures. In ICUs that have those rules, sometimes the families are allowed to stay beyond those. That creates confusion on its own. Uh, Here at Intermountain Medical Center at the University of Utah, and we know in many other ICUs, a more open model is practiced where families are allowed to be at the bedside almost any time with unrestricted visiting hours. Family members are welcomed on rounds and even to stay for invasive procedures. But in general, the state of family involvement is, I would call it, in flux and highly variable. So uh, why did you think it should be more standardized, and why do you think a family should be more involved? Such an important question. I think we've begun to evolve in our understanding of what's at stake during an intensive care unit admission recently. Historically, we sort of thought just in terms of the dramatic battles of high medical technology against life-threatening illness. But then slowly we've begun to understand that there's a lot more going on than just medical. There are moral and existential problems that we have to confront as people 
confront the possibility that they're going to die potentially at the end of an ICU admission. And then in the field more broadly, we've begun to identify post-intensive care syndrome, both for patients and families, which add an emotional, psychological, and functional overlay onto that old question of, will we survive the acute life-threatening illness in the intensive care unit. And as we've begun to confront these other aspects of the experience of a life-threatening illness, all of a sudden it no longer makes sense to exclude families because existentially and morally, what's the problem? Well, the problem is dehumanization. It's the loss of personhood that patients confront in the ICU. Well, who are the world experts on the humanity of the patient in the bed in front of you it's the families. It's the people the patient loves and who loves the patient. So if we want to be able to rehumanize them, we have to be able to consult with the experts in their humanity, which are their loved ones. In terms of post-intensive care syndrome, psychological distress, PTSD, phenomenal and chilling work from France 10 years ago now suggested that better communication and involvement of families and orientation to bereavement dramatically decreases PTSD and depression among family members of patients that go on to die in the intensive care unit. And then the, the other piece that I'm only now seeing in the last few years that we've been having families just continuously with us is help with burnout. I can't tell you how much more fun it is to be doing clinical work again, now that I know that I've got these relationships with these family members, that they're a part of our team, that we're working together toward a shared aim, that we're able to develop a bit of a relationship and get to know each other better, that they're able to help me deliver safer and more consistent care. We've been having families on rounds as well as present in the procedures, and commonly the families will provide continuity of care that gets lost as the trainees bounce back and forth in these crazy work hours restrictions that force them to have the strange shifts. Often we're finding during procedures that bringing a loved one into that comfort tent where they're able to be under the sterile drape with their loved one with the air circulating freely on the patient's face, we're finding that the patients are calmer, not having to use sedatives anymore to get central lines in because the family member is there helping it to be calmer. So I think, unfortunately, for those that are accustomed to the old model, we're really looking at labor and delivery circa 1965. And I think the probability that anybody's going to be able to make a coherent argument to keep family members out, except in rare circumstances, is going to disappear just like it disappeared in labor and delivery. Well, I think you've made a very strong case, heartfelt case for uh, making these changes. I mean, I'm a person myself. I was an ICU director and an intensivist for most of my career. And I guess I have some questions about this being an all or none. I think one of, one of the questions that I have, other people have raised about this, is that some family members are better able to handle the ICU experience than others. Some patients are more critically ill and may present difficulties in terms of comprehending this, this situation. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. It just means that it's not a uniformly easy process. So one of the uh, questions that has to be raised is, uh, are there studies that demonstrate that this is 
beneficial? And might it be different for different types of ICUs when you talk about labor and delivery? That that seems to, I mean, there's a standard labor and delivery process for most people having babies. But ICU is, uh, critical care is kind of a very uh, random, chaotic situation. And it seems to me more challenging than labor and delivery. So I wonder if you could comment on what the evidence is or the state of the evidence is supporting families present during procedures. And I'll ask you to play the devil's advocate, but uh, what might be the downsides? Sure. Thank you for these questions, mostly because we've heard the same thing from many, many of our colleagues. And I think they're commonly held concerns. What are the downsides? How can we support this? And the question of all or none. I think as far as all or none, you know, we advocate for common sense and discretion. So if there's a family member that's volatile or violent or seems altered by either a psychiatric illness or a substance, you know, it doesn't make sense to ask them to stay. They may be disruptive. It may not be safe for the provider or the patient. And I don't think that anyone using common sense would say that that person needs to stay just because in general we try and practice family and patient-centered care. There's also probably extreme circumstances where the patients don't want their family members to stay. There's a rift in the family and we try and be aware of that and respectful of everyone's wishes in the relationship. I think overall this is, and we'll discuss some of the evidence as well that we've found, although that's fairly limited, that this is a risk and benefit. So we, in general, as providers in the ICU or any setting, are always weighing what the risks and what the benefits are to anything. And um, in this case, we think that the benefits outweigh the risks. And some of those risks that people are bring up pretty commonly include that family members are going to get in the way, that family members might be harmed physically because they may become upset or faint during the procedure. Physicians worry that they'll be sued if something goes wrong and that's witnessed. We also found that people worry about the training experience, that we're not going to be able to educate uh, residents and fellows very well if there's a family member watching. These have not been well studied in general. Um, the family members in the studies that have happened, so studies of CPR, resuscitation, many people are familiar with the recent studies that were published in the New England Journal addressing that, found that family members actually had improved outcomes if they were able to witness a resuscitation. We see the same thing in our experience, that family members being present leads to better communication, and family members are more trusting of the ICU team. You know, traditionally, a lot of times a family member will only see the ICU providers when they round for a few minutes during the day, even though the provider spends a long time during rounds discussing the case and maybe a long time prepping and performing a procedure carefully. And when family members see all of that and they're part of that, then they're and improved satisfaction and improved communication. I think we get into this, into a kind of rut sometimes when we return to standards of evidence that have been developed to avoid abuses by pharmaceutical companies over the years and with the FDA. And the most common concern that I think I hear, and I've been at this for I can't even remember, six or seven years now of having families around for procedures. And I'll confess that eight or 10 years ago, I had very similar ideas about it. 
terms of being concerned that either A, it would cause difficulty, whether complication from the procedure or an inefficiency in the procedure, and worried that it there wasn't any evidence to support having them there. I've since come to think that we don't have any evidence that they should be excluded. And in the absence of any evidence to say they should be excluded, I think we're stuck with the moral argument, which is when you ask them, patients and families, almost to a person, they say, we should have the right to be with our loved one at a time of crisis. We may waive that right if we desire to waive it for whatever reason, but we ought to have that right. So I think you have to be thoughtful about raising the question of evidence, because I actually think that argues in favor of having patients and families present, because there's no evidence that they ought to be excluded. But what I will say is it takes a little bit of learning to do procedures with family presence. And for those of us that work in academic environments or remember back even to our fellowship before now in private practice, we had to learn how to supervise a procedure by a trainee. Slightly different skill set, stretched us just a little bit, but we never refused to train the next generation of physicians, even though it required a slightly expanded skill set on the grounds that it would be too hard or inefficient. There are cases, even now, where I think a procedure is too difficult for a trainee at a given level of competence. And in that circumstance, I have them join me for the procedure, but I largely do the procedure. And the same is true with patients and families. In our experience now with hundreds of central lines and innovations and chest tubes and the like with family members with us, about half of family members want to stay during the procedure. About half would rather not. What's crucial is that you give them the option, not the requirement that they be present. And the other thing that we've noticed is probably, I'll let Sarah opine as well on this, but probably in the range of one or two percent of family members are really not able to be present during a procedure. And it's important that we not steer from the periphery, that we not say we will do a disservice to 98% of family members in order to avoid a difficult situation with 2%. And what you find is you start to get into it, so you start in your comfort zone. I did not start having family members present for innovations. I started having them present during central lines in large part because I noticed that they helped to calm the patient during the central line and because we developed that comfort tent to decrease claustrophobia for the patient. And that comfort tent starts before the family members started being present. So I started out, and after I'd done a year or two of the family members present during the central lines, I had extended my skills just a little bit. I was more comfortable with them present. And then I started to say, you know, innovation is a procedure that takes from the patient the ability to speak, by and large. And if the patient dies, it may remove from them the ability to speak for the rest of their life. And that began to seem morally momentous to me in a way that made it more difficult to justify having the family members out of the room. And so that was the transition that I had. So I think in response to those useful and important concerns, it does take a little bit of practice. So you probably want to start becoming accustomed to it with patients and families that seem quite calm. Then you find after you've gotten a little bit of comfort with it, that you are able to very safely and usefully have a wide variety of family members present during the procedure. And my guess is that about once a year, 
I now ask a family member to leave during a procedure. And in my experience, the reasons for that have been active intoxication with Mm. behavioral abnormalities. And the last time I had to do it was a few months ago, and that was a family member that was having a panic attack before the procedure started and was unable to self soothe. But, you know, just I think we included in the online data supplement that extends some of the narratives for the paper just had a situation where a family member, two parents, were on the verge of tears as we undertook an important procedure, an airway exchange catheter to deal with loss of the cuff on an ET tube on a patient. And they'd been told previously that if that ever happened, the child would definitely be dead. And so I assured them that we would do everything right. And I said, you seem frightened to me. Would you rather be out in the waiting room? And with tears in their eyes, they turned to me and said, the anxiety would be twice as bad in the waiting room. Please, can we stay? They weren't yelling or acting out or swooning. They were just frightened and weeping. They'd been in the room for a difficult femoral artery catheterization three hours before and had been well uh, able to interact well during the procedure with us. And so I said, please stay. You know, I'm going to have to focus on the procedure. And, and Sarah wrote up these really great scripts that I think helped to orient to some of the communication that might set the expectations before the procedure did the procedure, did it with a fellow who was relatively inexperienced, but I was very hands-on as we did the procedure. And it was great. And immediately after the procedure, I was able to just say things went fine. Huge relief on their faces. Obviously the right thing to have done. So I have less experience than Sam with this, but starting in the beginning of my fellowship now a few years ago, thanks actually to a conversation with Sam, I realized why was I asking family members to leave and just started asking, do you want to stay? About half, kind of in my experience, and I think Sam's had a similar experience, half of family members get the surprise look and they think, yeah, I I do want to stay. And the other half say, oh, no, I wouldn't want to be here. I don't like blood. I don't like needles. And so I think by taking that choice away and saying, I don't think that this family member would be able to handle it, we're not treating them like adults who can make their own decision to some extent. And then the family members that stay, I haven't had any issues with any any disruptive behavior, and it allows me to communicate throughout the procedure what's happening, whether I'm performing it or whether I'm supervising a resident performing it. And in general, the response is always positive. Either they're sitting in the back and don't really pay attention, they're just happy to be there and not have to leave, or they're holding their family member's hand and they are reassuring their family member and then they're reassured themselves. So as Sam mentioned, there are going to be possibly very rare circumstances where this is not appropriate and doctors are smart and the medical team can usually identify that. And in those cases, we wouldn't say that family members have to be included. But in general, this should be the default and that's what we're advocating for. Well, I I think you've made a a very good case for that. I I just I would wonder is uh, or ask you the question: Is this accepted practice throughout your institution, or is this kind of a a small brave group of pioneers within your institution? We started this some years ago, and I think when we first started it, colleagues, it, we work with wonderful people here who are great, and the nurses and the house staff. And the patients and families began to get accustomed to it as I was doing it. 
And increasingly, I think they just said, well, it seemed a little strange in the beginning, but it hasn't led to any complications that are apparent. And people just seem happier and more content. And over time, colleagues just said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Now, it's not 100%, I would say at Intermountain Medical Center. It will vary from ICU to ICU, and it'll vary from physician to physician. We don't currently have a mandatory policy. I would say that the culture has changed in shock trauma ICU, but there hasn't been a mandatory policy change, in part to respond to some of the concerns about this. Sarah's leading a project. She's submitting a grant to do a formal policy change with some before-after and some careful probing of the trainee experience and procedural efficiency and other things along those lines. It, because in large part, we believe that the research that ought to be done shouldn't be research to find out whether families ought to be incorporated. It's research to figure out the very best way to do it. And for that, there will be some, for this research that Sarah is leading, there will be some adjustments in the policy that happened during that. But I would say that in terms of culture, the shock trauma ICU, which is our biggest and busiest ICU and includes both trauma that's staffed by trauma surgeons and a medical surgical side that's staffed by our group of primarily pulmonary intensivists, I would say that the penetration is very high now rare that a patient or family wouldn't be incorporated. I'm also finding as we evangelize this over the last few years that people at other institutions are also starting to say, you're right, why exactly am I separating two people who love each other very much at a time of emotional crisis? Why am I doing that again? And I've had colleagues in emergency medicine and colleagues in critical care at other institutions begin to experiment with this practice uh, in their own institutions. So I would say, I think we're at 1965 with labor and delivery, where it was a few voices saying that we don't need to assume that family members don't belong at this medicalized encounter with overall good hearts and good minds and some skepticism on the part of the broader culture but I think within a few years, there will be a cultural transformation because I think the assumptions that drove the exclusion of families from the ICU just aren't tenable. And now that they're being called out explicitly, they're no longer the kinds of principles that people will ultimately feel comfortable rallying behind. So I would say that we are, we are a little odd, I will confess, and have been for the last five or eight years. But with each passing year, we are seeming less and less odd, I have to say. Well, I would raise one issue, and that is your particular area may be just the population may be more open to this. You know, the America, the world is very diverse. You know, I'm in New York City, and we have one of our counties, boroughs. They speak uh, 182 languages. So I think, although I agree with you in principle, the questions of how do you go forward with this. And secondly, uh, the issue of including a family, including family members, may be very reasonable, and it's something that I personally support, but maybe not as much in uh, in the performance of procedures. So uh, h- how do you want to take this forward? You know, even if it, there's a cultural change in your institution, how do, how do we uh, get other health systems, other geographic areas to feel comfortable with this? 
Right. And I did my medical school in New York City and spend a lot of times out in the boroughs. Lots of great memories there with good people and very, as you say, very diverse backgrounds and cultures and languages. It was often kind of an adventure to communicate with the patients and their family members at all. I would think that this, as in family presence at procedure and introducing that to families and talking to them about it, could be just part of the regular consent process. Before a procedure is done in the ICU, we often, or usually, especially if there's time, we ask the family members if the patients aren't able to consent. We describe the procedure and we make an attempt to communicate with them about the procedure and about care in general. And part of that communication could include, you know, if you would want to be here during this, we would be okay with that. Would you like to stay and witness this procedure and be a support to your family member? Or does that make you uncomfortable? If so, we will get you from the waiting room when it's done. We don't find that it adds a lot of discussion and it doesn't change the uh, actual consent process or setting up for the procedure. It's really not an increase in time or effort necessarily by the medical team. As far as different cultures, I think actually many of the non-English speaking patients we have may carry more distrust than English speaking patients. They may not feel like they really understand what's going on. And increasing transparency, allowing them to see what's happening and to be part of that may improve the relationship between patients and families and the medical team. So I think that going forward as physicians around the country and around the world think, you know, is this for me? Which I hope is the question that's brought to mind when they listen to this podcast or read our paper or hear discussions and ask, why am I not doing this? Is it because I have never tried it or I don't want to take the time? And as Dr. Brown mentioned, it's a it's a process like anything that you learn, but it ends up, I think, in general being easier than it seems like it would be. Most patients and families are really reasonable people that you can communicate with and say, we're potentially trying this, we're letting family members stay, we have a seat for you, we don't want you to touch anything, here's a mask and here's a head, a hat for your hair, sit here and hold your family member's hand and we'll talk through this procedure as we do it. And that is not a huge step, I don't think. I think that asking our colleagues to try that or to consider trying that is not asking them to dramatically change the way they practice, but to think about how they're interacting with families and why they're excluding them. So, uh, terms of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask if you have any specific plans to study this, we'll say, cultural change or procedural change to provide support for those who might want to carry this forward against cultural and institutional resistance? We do. So as I wrote this and have been thinking about it and presenting in local division meetings about this, similar questions and concerns have been raised. And as we've talked about, we don't feel like it needs to be studied because we feel like there's a moral imperative, but we recognize many people are uncomfortable with that. So I've been designing a study to try and address those concerns and also to help with implementation, a policy change here at the shock trauma ICU where we would study families being present, study families not being present, and try and evaluate these concerns in a more empiric way. Does the uh, patient have any you know, what, say in One this? thing, Alan, within 
quickly, Sam here. The other thing we're working on is starting to put together a suite of videos that will provide orientation and role play for how you have the initial conversation just as part of the informed consent, how you interact with a family member during the procedure, and what to do if there's a concern during the procedure. To the question of ethnic and linguistic diversity, I think it's entirely fair to say when you're just getting your feet wet in having families around during procedure, it's okay to pick people at the beginning who speak your native language, who look comfortable, who don't seem to have any likelihood of struggling with the procedure. I think that's fine as a place to start. I think if you end up only able to have people that look just like you in the room during a procedure, that's a problem. But for starting out, I think it's totally fine. And that's how I started out, with people that I thought, there's no way on earth they will have any trouble here. They're calm. They speak English. There's no evidence of substance abuse or substantial mental health problems. We're good. And now, over time, I find that people who are active meth addicts, but not currently intoxicated, have been delighted to be in the room with me and delighted to feel a part of things and have caused no trouble at all. And non-English speaking individuals, we don't have 188 languages in Utah, but we probably have, I don't know, 25 or 30 languages that will come through our ICU. And so far they've done well. So I think a lot of it is just the dread of the unknown and uncertainty about it. And and I wouldn't want somebody to have their first time a family member is present at a procedure be an actively intoxicated, non-English speaking person with psychotic symptoms. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, yeah, I'd hope not. you're going to say, you're, if you do that, you're going to say, and these guys, never doing these guys that are really out there. I'm never going to do that again. But if you well, start I, with somebody normal... It's pretty easy. Uh, I would encourage both of you and your colleagues to pursue research in this area because I think it would add to the comfort level of the uh, critical care community that where, for example, I knew that you had data uh, on 5,000 procedures and 90 went well, and you identified those situations up front that we should be cautious about, uh, I would be a much stronger advocate for this, which I believe is is the right way to go. I just like to have that comfort level to know that it's the right, right way to go. One last thing, and it doesn't specifically deal with your paper, but I, the, uh, idea of making the ICU more humane is one that is very appealing to me. I think it is a very um, difficult and dehumanizing situation. So what are the uh, priorities you see in critical care to make it more humane? Well, just a couple. I know this could be a three-hour discussion, but where do you see this going? What could we do? That's a great question, and it's been a real passion for me for years. As fate would have it. I have a book out just last month from Oxford University Press called Through the Valley of Shadows, Living Wills, Intensive Care, and Making Medicine Human that lays out a grand plan for reform for humanization at fixing the problems in the intensive care unit. To my eye, there are a couple of things we ought to jump on right now. First is 
you can't honestly believe a person's human if you systematically exclude them from the team. There is an incoherence there. We can't in one breath be saying, you don't belong with us on rounds, in the ICU, during procedures, and I'm aware I'm being sort of strong about this, but surely at a minimum, open visitation, independent of procedures. It's inconsistent to say, I want you to be humanized here in the ICU. Oh, and by the way, the people that you love most in the world and who love you most in the world can't come. They're not a member of the in-team. Bearing in mind that we routinely have paramedic students, nursing assistants, medical students who are wonderful people with a bright future but know very little about what's going on, we routinely allow them to come through. But you being the world expert on your loved one in the ICU, you are not welcome. So I think the simplest first thing to do is open visitation open rounds, bring the family members in if they would like to be there. The second thing that I think is very important is we need to move away from this model that we've had since the 1970s of consumer-based medical care. That has tended to generate these long forms that no one understands or cares about and menus that we ask people to choose from with no understanding of who they are as individuals. So the model that we propose, and it's a model that people like Doug White and Randy Curtis working in San Francisco and Pittsburgh for Doug and then in Seattle for Randy and many others have been working on for a long time. How do you walk with people through a crisis in a way that's true to them as individuals and helps them to navigate these life and death questions? What I see commonly in many ICUs is a request for a DNR. If you die or if your heart stops, do you want us to break your ribs? Fill out the little form and walk away. And that's this sort of consumer model. Would you like to order a rib breaking and a larynx invasion from our menu or would you not? Whatever you want is fine with me. Just let me know and I'll let the cook know. That's the kind of model that a lot of people get, not who are you? What matters to you? What phase of life are you in? What are you worried about? I was going to say one of the um, areas that I think probably can improve exactly on the problem you're raising is including the primary care doctors in the ICU decision-making because as an intensivist, I always found that it took a while to know who the people were. And I see when I'm the uh, primary on patient that I've known for a while and that person ends up in the ICU, it's kind of how do you get to know somebody in crisis uh, with an acute illness without really knowing what came before and what kind of people they are. So uh, I fully agree with you, and there are probably a number of steps that could be taken to improve our understanding of who these people are rather than, again, one size fits all. That's exactly right. And anyone who has a knowledge of the patient or what they might have wanted if they're unable to speak for themselves you know, in the ideal world, they would be included. And I think many physicians have progressively tried to communicate with primary care physicians, with specialists who've taken care of the patients and get as well-rounded a picture as possible. So I, I agree with you. That's, a, that's an important way to get to know someone that you may be taking care of for a, a short period of time in a critical situation. Well, 
I think we've heard some very uh, cogent and passionate discussion of some cultural changes that we should be considering in the critical care environment. And I think uh, this has been just an absolutely wonderful discussion that will hopefully will provoke more discussion and perhaps change to make uh, our critical care units more humans. I want to thank Dr. Sarah Beasley and Samuel Brown from uh, the University of Utah for sharing their thoughts. Uh, This is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society wishing you all uh, a great day and good learning.